Welcome to Smith Weekly Discussions, an occasional program for our readers and listeners of Smith Weekly Research. Please note this program is private discussion and everything contained herein is for entertainment and educational purposes only. With that, we hope you're in a good position, along with your favorite beverage, to enjoy the discussion. Jacob Leadgard has joined us. Jacob is the founder of Hammer Investing, an office focused on deep value propositions in the market, including things like uranium. Hammer Investing is based out of Sweden. Jacob, how are things? They're good, Andrew. Thank you for having me on as a guest. So, so Jacob, uh, tell us your background and, and why you started uh, Hammer Investing. Uh, my background, I, uh, I got into investing at, in uh, around uh, 2006. I had been a poker uh, pro for a year. Uh, and prior to that, I've been in sales. Um, so, but it was really uh, the the poker background that got me started in investing. So I was a, a pro poker player uh, until the end of 2015. Uh, I still play a little bit, but uh, I don't put in the same volume as I did back then at all. So uh, investing takes pretty much up uh, up all of my time now. Uh, and um, uh, when it comes to hammer investing, um, that started about five years ago. Okay. And uh, so, what? What? Uh, well, give us give us a little bit of uh, your experience in the poker playing business. Kind of, kind of tell us how it how it works. And uh, was was there any money to be made in it? Uh, there certainly was back in the day. Now it's a lot tougher. Um, so. In the in the beginning, you know, I had I had played uh, maybe half uh, six months or something like that before I turned pro. So so that meant that uh, it was it was pretty easy uh, back in the day. Uh, you just had to put in some time to study um, study the hands away from the table. You know, um, try to dig into um, the best play and. And you typically did that um, with other players. You analyze a hand and and try to come up with the the right results uh, for what to do. And so we all improved pre- pretty quickly. And and as that happened, the games got tougher and tougher. And um, those who were less inclined to study the game, uh, they perished. And the rest held on a little longer. And now. Uh, now the young guns have taken over, and there's not as much room for guys like me, <laughs> unless I put in. It's also a question about how hungry are you, and you know I find the markets infinitely more interesting than playing the game of poker. So that's natural shift away from it. Well, it's, um, it's interesting you uh, you make that mention. Uh, you said kind of the, the young guns are are kind of kind of taken over is there a is there a thought that uh some of these younger players uh are more are more savvy than the older players does that tend to play out uh, with with the poker side as well um there is a little bit of that uh definitely and also the the you know the more software to analyze your your playing away from the table and Perhaps they're just more inclined to do all the work there, and I was in the beginning as well. And 
lately I just didn't I didn't have the same hunger. Yeah, I I'm, I mean I think as a, as a young person maybe it's a little easy to 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 spend the time to to the uh, to the truth of the situation, so to speak. Right. I, I think that uh, we had um, kind of a kind of a similar experience when I was uh, when I was younger. I used to uh, in, kind of in college in, in the spare time, which you know I didn't study much in college, and so we we tended to enjoy more of uh, having fun than anything. And and I, I remember that used to be really good at playing, you know, online video games and used to be really uh, sharp with, with, uh, you know, beating everybody. Whereas, whereas uh, in the later years, as uh, time got more focused on things that were, you know, focused on creating value in life and, and kind of, uh, you know, more important to me, um, I, I spent more, you know, less and less time uh, doing it. And then when I did do it on a holiday or something like that uh, with friends, I found that the the uh, the people in there that were playing were were incredibly way better than I was, and uh, I was getting smoked uh, every time uh, I attempted to do something, whether it was uh, you know playing uh, Halo uh, early on or uh, Call of Duty and these different uh, video games back then. And uh, so it's interesting to see how uh, some of the uh, young guns can just uh, trump you quite well. So yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I imagine it's also a question of, you know, just more capacity for clicking the mouse faster. And uh, from what I hear, they, they peak really early in, in those e-sport e games there. Uh, it's not exactly the same in poker, but um, but still, there is some uh, similarities there, I think. Tell, tell us this, though. What, what experience and strategy in poker have you now applied to the financial markets? Um, I think it's uh, uh, well. We, we think in per, in uh, probabilities, just like you have to in the market. It's not, for example, if you have a, a bet. Uh, for example, the the uh, U.S. election 2016. Um, the um, you know Trump, he the betting sites they had him as a 15 percent, or uh, they had Hillary as a 85 percent uh, favorite. And and then there were um, um, there's a site called uh, Five Thirty Eight, which is a, a site that analyzes uh, political uh, elections and who's the favorite. They use some very uh, uh, sophisticated models for for assessing that, and uh, they have a really nice track record in, in judging that. So if they say if they are very accurate and they say okay there's a 70% chance that Hillary wins and 30% Trump wins, and the betting site says uh, 15 for Trump, uh, then perhaps you should bet uh, for uh, you should bet on Trump even though uh, there's a huge probability that you will lose, but it's just uh, the odds are in your favor in comparison to uh, the chance that you lose. Right. So that's that's one way. It's it's like an option, you know. Um, it's the same in in stocks where you have a company that might go bankrupt, but uh, if it doesn't, you have maybe a ten bagger. And so it depends on the price that you're getting on it, whether it's a good or a bad bet. And some people will just just plain ignore it because it's a dangerous play. But uh, if you 
if you don't bet too hard on it, too heavily on it, then it might be a good bet. So that's a, this, that's also a way we think in when I play poker. It's a very standard way of yeah. thinking. And not intuitive yeah, to many outside, I think. Yeah, I think it's I think it's uh, you know kind of bet, betting against the crowd or you know not not everybody being on one side of the canoe. Uh, there's certainly got to be uh, someone to pick that up, and, and when you dig into it, you'll find that uh, uh, you know you have some really good risk versus reward setups. And then with, with yeah, price, that's the uh, you know, just like in the uh, in the uranium mining business, or really in any sector, uh, even even a company that really is kind of not that great, uh, but when you are able to get it at a price that is absolutely fantastic, pennies on the dollar, uh, you can still do well even if the outlook uh, isn't all that rosy. And so, anyway, it, it's it's interesting how you can you know apply the, some of those experiences, uh, you know, strategy and poker and, and outcomes and odds and so forth. Uh, so it's pretty interesting. Yeah. Yeah, so that's the art side, art side of uh, of the whole thing, and of course, there's also the emotional aspects of being in the markets and 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 playing poker. And so there's some stuff you learn there. Uh, I mean, how to handle losing, how to handle uh, winning as well. I mean, uh, sometimes when you're on, on good streaks, you you really need to perhaps even see yourself as your own worst enemy because um you're dangerous to yourself if you think that this will just continue because well who is it that's betting on this thing it's you and you've won so much uh in the recent past so of course you're going to win again and uh right. so you really want to get the math in there and, and and get objectivity so i for example also if i was to bet on a money manager i think I would probably pick the one who's been losing lately because there's a higher chance that he's putting in the work than the guys who, who's been winning, uh, who's who's on a on a good streak. Because I think you just work harder when you're when you're in a tough situation. <laughs> so uh, yeah, you had you good need point. so That's so when yeah, and when you put when you're when you're doing well, you have to push yourself harder to. Uh, so. On, on kind of those same lines, uh, let's expand and, and look at the uh, the big market. Uh, so, what are your thoughts on on the big uh, stock market today, and, and how are you positioning going into 2019? Uh, yeah, certainly, interesting times. Um, and right now, they are very volatile, and um, the the uranium market is throwing a lot of pitches at us right now. So that's good. Uh, if you have some money on the sideline. And um, actually, I tend to to think of December and January as usually I'm not levered at all, so I uh, I don't use leverage usually. But uh, when it's December and January, there's this uh, tax selling effect and there's window dressing and the January effect in the small cap space and the illiquid uh, stock. So I tend to take on a little bit more risk in um, in in those months it's maybe that sounds crazy to some but you know this the statistics say that it's perhaps a, a good idea to do so because there's a lot of right. stocks that have been doing bad during the year and uh that uh, people want to 
sell some of those to uh, how do you say quit against the losers uh, against the winners you know to to cancel them out uh, and uh, so that's one part of it then there's also window dressing uh, money managers who don't like to have the the dirt so to speak the uh, the losers on the books for the clients to see so that's a little bit of a scummy thing to do but it happens. It's a it's a bit of a dirty secret, but we know it happens. And so, if you if you can stand and just pick up what everybody's throwing out uh, in these months, I say thank you. Um, so right. that's a strategy. It, it's not a very comfortable strategy. I really hate leverage. So uh, whenever this is done, I'm I'm happy. But I feel like I have to do it. So so in in your view. Uh... Uh, what is what is the ideal portfolio mix in terms of percentage, uh, long, short, and cash uh, going uh, forward at this point? I don't short at all, but that's because of the tax rules where I live. Uh, but so the way I do that is I do have some gold miners as a hedge. Uh, so I have perhaps 10% there. And I think going into 19 and 20, I, I would ideally like to up that percentage a little bit, to maybe 15 or maybe slightly above that. And uh, usually I have 10% cash or something like that. I, I had uh, one month ago, I had 10%. And now, uh, as I said, I'm, I'm levered, so I have pretty much no cash left. But uranium is a big part of uh, my portfolio right now. And... The reason for that is that I see uranium as having both offensive qualities um, and also defensive. Uh, because if we are tanking and if we are crashing, if the market is, if this is really the big one, then I don't think demand for uranium will suffer that much. If we look back to 2007, there was a slack. A glitch. It, uh, you know, demand is now maybe 180 uh, million pounds of, of uranium uh, per year, and I think when I looked at the graph, it was a clip of maybe five million pounds. And and if we look at the supply and demand situation now, uh, that is easily covered by all the supply cuts. So I I have a difficult I have a hard time seeing. Uh, the downside being that bad, even if uh, in, in a very tough situation for for the markets in general. I mean, the stocks could could do poorly, but the fundamentals, uh, which is what matters, if you don't have to sell, if you can hold on, you know, if if this is the big one, or if it happens uh, one one or two months from now, and the stocks are maybe down one year from now still. Uh, if you don't have to sell, it's no problem because the fundamentals are good. Yeah, I think I think there's some a number of issues you mentioned. Uh, you know, one, uh, you know, how how these things certainly recently the uh, kind of uh, hedge style that is coming with some of the commodity sector uh, natural resources. Uh, so, for example, uh, you know, uh, some of your precious metals and base metals stocks are kind of uh, indifferent to the market decline at this point um, they've been performing a little bit better since they've kind of uh, sentiment has kind of 
been reduced significantly since their recent, you know, 20, mid-2016 highs. And so now you're seeing when the market is dropping, you'll see that these typically are, are holding up or even uh, going up. And so that's, yeah. that's an interesting piece of it. And then, you know, too, with, with uranium, um, you know, I think folks need to remember, too, at the same time that, you know, all these things are equities. And so while the under, the underlying fundamentals of the mineral itself may be doing well, these equities could get hurt. And so you have to yeah. look at what happened in, in 2000, uh, 2008, uh, yeah. the decline that happened across the board. And then you have the 2001-2002 timeframe where these equities actually did incredibly well while the, the big market came down. And so you kind of have a split, kind of a split opinion of, you know, which one of these is going to play out this time. And I think that's where it makes sense for people to have a little bit of cash uh, because yeah. if they do decline, and, and you can still hold, but if they do decline, uh, I'm sorry, but the value proposition, uh, if these uranium stocks get cut by 50% from here, that's a nice area to add to your position. And so that's where it makes sense to make sure that you do have ways to uh, raise cash and, and take advantage of even better uh, potential sales. So I think that while folks might be heavy long uranium, I think that you do still need to maintain some cash because if you have a 50% decline, that is, in my view, uh, 50% more attractive. <laughs> yeah, definitely. That, that's a gift, or at least very, very close to 50%, because the fundamentals don't change much, even in a, in a, in a crisis in this particular right. sector. Correct. And in yes. so many and in so many other sectors, in the growth stuff, that's a that's a different animal because there, if the market declines, it's not just the market. I mean, it's there could be liquidity issues, all kinds of stuff. Just makes the fun, fundamentals um, change. So it's very different. So that's why I that's why I'm so heavy uh, in uranium because of the defensive qualities also as well as the uh, the, the obvious up, upside yeah certainly certainly there's there's a good proposition there uh, before before we knock uh, you know kind of talk more on uranium uh, is there any other sectors uh, in the market right now that kind of have your attention uh, I do look at wind energy in Sweden but that's more company specific um, there's been some um, the the energy prices have, have risen quite quite uh, high this year. Uh, part of that that is because of CO2 emission quotas that have uh, really skyrocketed skyrocketed, and um, so that has put upwards pressure on that market. And uh, also, you are getting uh, the, the projects that they are selling the wind farm, the unfinished. The, uh, projects are uh, getting much higher margins, so I've been investing uh, quite a big portion of my portfolio in that. Well, um, tankers is another another area that's been hit hard, and you know the prices of in, in that space is extremely violent. Uh, I think with six thousand a vessel uh, in the medium range tankers one month ago, and then. One or two weeks later, it was three times that. So <laughs> it's a it's a crazy space, and got to be patient in those things. And also another uh, thing I look at, and that's 
perhaps an advantage of being a small investor is that I, I tend to look for illiquid stocks because they uh, there's a bigger chance that they're mispriced either either on the low side or on, on the upside uh, or either underpriced or overpriced. So there are not as many eyes looking at it because it's so illiquid. And so when it moves, which uh, you know I was I was talking about window dressing and tech selling. And it's it's especially in those illiquid stocks that the moves really are significant, and where you can step in and take advantage, where you can just sit with your hand and open your hand and and perhaps grab some shares now and then um, from stocks that you've followed. Of course, um, you you have to know what you're buying, of course. But uh, so I have a um, I have 50 stocks that I follow and. When I when I find some discounts, I I, I try to strike, right. or at least put in yeah. put put in some shameful offers. <laughs> <laughs> right. No, I think that uh, I think that there's a, a number of places. You know, uh, obviously at this point, you know, I think I think folks can sleep better at night, making sure that they do have some cash around, uh, yeah. or access or a good access to it. Um, and and also with that, you know, having uh, a little bit of, you know, be watching what's going on in the in the tanker of the shipping space, uh, the offshore services space, uh, that those opportunities still exist and uh, have come down uh, recently with uh, the decline that's that's happened in oil. Uh, so yeah. I think folks need to still keep an eye on that because that still presents a substantial value opportunity uh, longer term, of course. And then you know too. If there's if there's some concern about where the market's heading in 2019, I, I think that folks still need to consider uh, some of the long-term long-term uh, hedge, you know, kind of uh, quasi shorts where you can look at you know long-term options uh, with some of these extremely overpopular, overbought, uh, you know, companies that uh, everybody talks about. Uh, still, you know, your your Teslas, your Netflixes. Uh, you know, in some cases, even your, uh, even Amazon uh, can be a, a potential candidate there, because those those provide uh, downside uh, protection because those stocks have been so popular over the years. When when the air comes out, uh, the air is going to be coming out of those stocks uh, quite heavily because those are the stocks where uh, most of these uh, indexes have moved to. And uh, if you if you You've noticed these these names make up a substantial amount of the U.S. markets, and so those will come down. And so it's good to have a little bit of a you know downside protector in the form of you know put options, which which are fantastic because you have a fixed price you pay for the insurance, and you don't have to worry about uh, you know being actual short the stock and paying the interest to borrow the shares, and then also you know having unlimited unlimited uh, you know potential losses if the market decides to continue upwards uh, in 2019. So I think you know folks need to consider that. Yeah, that seems like a good strategy. Uh, one that I would probably pursue if our tax system was different because it sounds like another way to protect yourself, uh, even though shorting is really, really hard. Yeah. Right. But, uh, but so, by the way, you mentioned uh, I was you, you mentioned oil, and that's uh, it's it's a sector that I. I've looked at the seismic uh, sector in the past, and 
right now I, it's it's an area I want to look at further uh, because I haven't done too much work on it now the oil, the seismic and the drillers but because you're looking at it and you know every day you see these five percent declines in in these stocks that have been that I thought were pretty attractive uh, a month ago and they just keep they just keep on going down so that will be another uh, interesting space and I'd be interested in hearing your thoughts on it because now with the the interest rate hike yesterday I would think that the driller uh, sorry the shale uh, the US shale players they are already heavily indebted a lot of them and an interest rate, an interest rate hike would seem to me to put more pressure on them and therefore the um, the supply sides should get squeezed so it, it seems to me it would be a good situation for oil but it's getting hammered again perhaps it's a it's more of a demand issue but uh, I'm, I'm no expert in the space so i know i know you you know a lot more about it so uh, I'd be well, interested. i would just i would just yeah. say uh, you know long term uh jacob more or less uh you know oil hasn't broken where its where its prior low was uh in 2015 so we've had a decline yes uh but the oil markets are extremely liquid uh, probably among the most liquid in the world and as you know <laughs> these things can move down and they can also move up quite quickly uh just yeah. in a matter of uh, you know days as as we've recently seen and even even natural gas uh, it's impressive that the kind of moves that natural gas can put on so quickly and so i think that uh while uh, oil sentiment right now might be a little bit on the bearish side or, or the, the feelings that are hurt because of the declines, I think that uh, you know folks need to realize that uh, this this oil this oil thing isn't going anywhere anytime soon. Uh, these these uh, you know businesses will continue to provide services. Things will continue. Yeah, it, it sucks short term. It's a little bit uh, difficult to sit on the hands and, and look at it from a short term perspective. Uh, you know, for, for some folks that might be impatient, but however. Uh, you know these these trends will play out, and you've got to have a longer term outlook, and and you've got to have some patience uh, for the type of you know stuff that uh, that I mentioned. Um, yeah. So yeah. You know, I think it's it's good to keep it in perspective. Yeah, it's like that old uh, John Templeton quote, where he says, "People are always asking me where are things looking good, and and I always say to them, that's the wrong question. What you should be looking at is where is it the most miserable." Because that's where the uh, the rate of change is in in your favor. Uh, what can happen on the upside is it, it only needs to go from miserable to bad, and you're making a ton of money. Whereas if you are in the spaces where it's fantastic, you need them to be spectacular to make money, and that's the mean reversion means that that is less likely to happen. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. I, I agree 100%. Um, so uh, moving on here, um, let's move to uranium. Uh, give us give us your strategy. Give us kind of a broad overview strategy of how you plan to play this uranium cycle. I play it from the um, well. The the, the main uh, positions that I'm looking at is the, the near term producers. Um, and there are a couple of reasons for that. Uh, one is that um, since they have they have uh, assets that had produced in the past, 
I know there's less risk that something will go wrong. Uh, so I know it's not hopes and dreams because they have produced in the past. So that takes part of the risk out of it, in my opinion. Of course, they also bleed more cash. So you have to look at that side of it too. But uh, as I've, I'm not comfortable uh, with the technical reports, I'm not comfortable in my ability to to get the meat out of them and to, you know, there are numbers in them, but how much can those numbers be trusted? And I just see a lot more can go wrong in in some of the other uh, plays. But I know that some of them also priced. Uh, it's more difficult for me to assess the quality of, of those other plays. So that's why um, near-term producers are the number one thing I look at. and. I also look at the, um, you know, the holders of uranium, uh, uranium participation and yellow cake. That's the more conservative approach, of course, but I think it's a good one for many. Uh, but of course, the upside is not as as high. But it's interesting uh, what's happened recently in these last few weeks uh, with the um, the holders of uranium. Participation and yellow cake. Um, the discounts usually they they um, uranium participation usually trades at a premium. Um, I think five percent premium is the average uh, over the last twelve years. And now all of a sudden it's it's uh, at a discount, and not only a discount, but in the ten, eleven, twelve percent range. And I just did a, uh, yesterday I did a calculation where I said, okay, so now uranium price is at 29 per pound. And let's say that we are at 35 in, uh, at the end of nine, 2019. So that would be a 20% rise. And I think even the, even the best, um, think that that's not even, uh, a wild prediction. Um, but say say that happens, then the stock, if it trades at what it usually does, not at a discount but at a premium, then you all of a sudden you have a stock that has risen forty uh, percent. So the commodity has, has risen twenty percent, but the the stock has risen forty. And also because it's at a discount, um, the downside is much more protect, protected. So whereas now the price is 29 uh, for uranium, you buy it as if the price is 26. Uh, so even if we take a dive, you, you're pretty well protected there. It's not a very offensive option, but you, you know it's and it's not the majority of my uh, funds that's of my uranium exposure that's in those, but it's the uh, second highest position actually. And it's a kind of you know if if I'm wrong then uh, I don't lose much. That's that's the protection part of the portfolio that I have. I, I think that, um, you know, we haven't, as you probably would have guessed, we, we haven't done a lot of research. We're plenty aware of them. We, we do watch them. We haven't done a lot of research from, you know, the potential investment side on some of these uh, holding funds like uranium participation and, and yellow cake and, and yeah. some of these other uh, folks that are lining up to to come out of the gate with these uh, kind of related uh, type companies, I, I know that uh, uh, probably I, I need to take a look at them. But 
one of the things that folks need to understand is with the discounts to, to net asset value, um, mm -hmm. you know, as as these as the commodity price does go up, sentiment improves, and these uh, kind of holding funds become become crowded. You will certainly mm -hmm. have a a squeeze on the the NAV side, and even even trading at a premium to NAV. Uh, my my only option for folks when you're considering these vehicles, you need to take a look at what the costs are. What are the costs to run these vehicles? Because they're not yeah. they're not monetizing their assets, and so you need to look at you know what what are what's the holding cost to have these? What are the management fees? Yeah. What are your thoughts on how to evaluate that side of it? Because these do kind of burn cash as they hold. Yes, but they don't burn very much. It's, uh, it's. Uh, I think for yellow cake, it's half a percent, a little more, uh, 0.6 or something like that, 0.7. And for uh, participation, it's a little bit higher, but still less than 1%. So, right. yeah, it's a, it is a drag uh, on performance, but it's. I think it's acceptable. And especially for people who are unable to draw conclusions from technical reports, and for people who don't follow the space, it's 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 what I recommend to friends and family, and also yes. I you know I buy it myself, especially now with the, the discount, and I know some very very savvy investors who who swear to this instrument as as the um, the favorite vehicle for them. Uh, at least when when we are at the price level where we are, where they see it as well as it's negative carry right now uh, for for many of the uh, near term producers and explorers, uh, because there's there's still a long way to go before they make money. Of course, they're also priced at a very reasonable, you, you know, the um, the non holders, the explorers, and and near term producers and the producers. Right. They they're trading attractively, but there there is a there is a downside there if if prices don't rise above forty, for example. Yeah, folks folks should take a look at these these businesses, especially the ones that are that are in this. Uh, you know, the, the trading uh, some of the other vehicles that are coming out. There's I think a royalty vehicle that's coming out, and another one that's another IPO that's coming soon. Uh, so I think folks just need to take a look at these types of vehicles, uh, consider the structure, consider what management's doing. Because I'm sorry, management uh, managements across all these vehicles are not created equal, and so you've got to you got to dig dig a little bit. And you know, Jacob, I'm going to ask you what between between the ones that are out there. Speaking of these specific vehicles, which which one to you kind of uh, there's got to be at least one that you kind of like better than the other. Uh, well, usually a, a yellow cake trades at two or three percent more discount than participation. So it seems to me the market likes participation better, perhaps because of the history. But then the other side of that coin is that uh, yellow cake has some options to buy from Kassatom Prom every year, one hundred million dollars, and and I think they can do it in a way where. Um, they may get a discount um, from the time they 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 use the option till the time they raise money. Uh, there's some time span where I think it's my understanding that they can let go of the whole thing if if prices move against them. Uh, I'm, I'm not 100% sure on that though, but it's roughly right. equal would would be my conclusion. I mean I'm pretty. Uh, 
either one is good at current levels. Right, right. That would be interesting to see because I don't think a lot of folks know about yellow cake yet, whereas uranium participation has been around for a long time. So that's kind of the go-to uh, vehicle. And then yellow cake uh, certainly has some attractiveness uh, coming with it too. I, both, both, both are quite good. Uh, you know, being backed by the Ladine family on on the participation corp side, and then of course uh, some good management folks involved with Yellow Cake. The people behind that are, are pretty solid as well. Um, so I yeah. think they both present some good opportunities. Obviously, Yellow Cake not so popular right now because it's new, and so maybe Yellow Cake does have a little bit of a attractiveness over participation corp right now. Uh, so it'll be interesting to see how these come along and then you know be cautious what what other ones are going to come out uh you know check these out you know some of them uh you know maybe uh, worse than others and uh but i can guarantee you more of these types will probably be coming to the market the, the royalty companies will probably be coming out as well so there'll be kind of a whole suite of different vehicles being thrown at investors yeah yeah which will lift prices <laughs> Of, of uranium. <laughs> <laughs> so we're all waiting for them to come, and we know they're coming. So let's no. So let's let's switch over. So you mentioned producers. Uh, tell me, tell me, tell me, kind of what your thought process is, and are you looking at producers specifically, say in the U.S. because of a Section 232, or are you looking at kind of all opportunities uh, globally, and uh, maybe looking at Canada as well? Obviously, we know we know about Cameco. We know Cameco's. Uh, the best blue chip that you can get for probably the lowest risk producer vehicle. Uh, so what, what are your thoughts on the producers and kind of where are you focused with the producers? Uh, for the near-term producers, uh, it's, there are not many out there. Uh, that's uh, three or four in the, in, in the United States. Um, and that's because the ISR mining where they can turn on quicker than many of the others. So and yeah, the, the two three two petition is a huge part of the reason why I look at United States. My biggest position actually is the energy fuels, which I've been quite vocal on on Twitter, and that is because of uh, superior capacity in my view uh, when it comes to uranium, and they also have some other legs to stand on, and if in, in case um, the price doesn't go up to where we would like it to be uh, and we have to wait longer, then uh, there's a chance that uh, these guys can uh, hold it out a little bit longer than some of the others um, due to other revenue res uh, sources of revenue. So they have a, a mill which uh, can generate uh, revenue and uh, there's some potential work for the government cleaning up some old uh, uranium mines from the 40s and 50s. And now there's a vanadium, the vanadium craze, uh, which energy fuels is uh, very well positioned to take advantage of. Now it's a little, it's declined a little bit, but uh, we'll see what go, what happens with that. But still, they should be able to make some uh, good margins there. Which could buy them some, some, um, some more time, maybe one or two years more, while we're waiting for uranium to happen. And yeah. then, of course, we don't know if the uh, administration will 
if there's a separate uh, pricing system coming to the United States um, based on national security, that they want to make sure they have uranium producers there, and that could make some significant um, impact on the prices, which send these guys to the moon, you know, two or three X them, I think, depending on the outcome, of course. I think you got to look, uh, you know, since the Section 232 came out, there's been there's been some, you know, efforts, efforts building up on that regard. And I think that, you know, you it certainly changes the focus that, uh, you know, the U.S. Uh, you know, developer producer side is probably a place that you certainly want to look. And, and certainly some of the explorers uh, will also be. Uh, you know, get a lift from that, that outcome. And uh, mm-hmm. so I think, you know, folks need to be kind of the first in line. It would probably be this 232, the U.S. producer stuff. Um, and then that, that'll kind of give the uh, the rest of the, the global stage kind of a, a shock to kind of come back alive and, and uh, start start to, to get this off the ground. So I think the Section 232 is, is certainly becoming a major catalyst uh, going forward. And it's, it's it's both about you know the national security issues and of course there's no better group group and running Washington uh, that that have these views uh, related to kind of protectionism and national security uh, issues and then also you know too maybe this 232 will be the spark that gets the U.S. more competitive on the global stage yeah. about the nuclear power industry you know going after right. uh, you know taking taking back some market share and being one of those. Uh, options out there, you know, you know, Saudi Arabia is looking at uh, doing some contracts and some deals with somebody, and yeah, and the Russians and the Chinese they're they're taking over right now. So the U.S. That's really right. needs to step in because it's a dangerous area to just let let uh, dictatorships basically to take to let them them take over. Uh, that that shouldn't be allowed to happen. Right, because the 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 efforts are on all fronts, Jake. You have uh, you know, energy, energy and technology. These are all fronts in a, uh, if you will, a war that, uh, you know, you need to compete in. And, you know, uh, the the U.S. not participating in deals uh, globally uh, where it's, you know, China and Russia come across and they offer up a, com- a complete suite package uh, for countries who want to get into nuclear. Sure, we'll give you the plant. We'll build the plant. We'll give you the operators. Uh, you got to buy the fuel from us. We'll give you the fuel cycle, uh, which will come from us. And this complete kind of a a complete, you know, uh, meal, if you will, for uh, for this type of uh, sector. So it's it's interesting to see what will happen and how the U.S. will step up in that regard. Um, so what what other what other producers are you looking at? Is there anything in Canada you're looking at, or anything uh, Africa or other places? Uh, yeah, I do. I do look at Cameco probably the, the best in class on all kinds of fronts. I mean, these guys just seem to be the best in, in everything they do. The The problem with them is that the upside seem limited and they don't have that many resources left. Uh, it's just that the way of um, their thinking seems sound and the, the management holds um, pretty significant uh, Ownership, not not over the whole business, but a significant. Um, I think the the charters uh, say that they have to, uh, and that that means they're more aligned with shareholders than some of the others that are just 
uh, rigging out large paychecks for themselves. So that's quite surprising that a big company, and usually it's the other way around. You have the smaller companies being more shareholder friendly. And uh, in this uh, space, uh, I find uh, it's, it's the opposite. So, uh, and also I think that uh, they will just, uh, because the history, because of um, they have larger resources, uh, I think they will be able to secure higher prices than some of the, the other ones, even though it's a commodity, uh, just simply based on the fact that uh, they have a longer history, they have a war chest to make sure they don't go down under uh, in a prolonged downturn. Um, but uh, that, that's just a theory. I'm, I'm not sure it'll be correct, but I think they might be able to secure higher prices. But uh, the problem is, I I, I am only I haven't invested invest much in them uh, because uh, when I look at the, when I do the calculations, the the cash flows they will be able to generate when the prices go to forty and fifty, it's not that different. Uh, it's it it doesn't um, because of the the way they have structured their deals, and because of the fact they're now buying in the market means that. Um, we need to see much higher prices for them to, to really make a, a difference in their cash flows. But of course, uh, the other side of that coin is that uh, it's, it's the only stock that uh, the big institutions can own. So perhaps regardless of, of their cash flows, they, the, their stock will rise ahead of many of the others. Uh, we'll see. Uh, no, I, th yeah. I think that's a good point because they are kind of the only game in town for the big ones. Uh, you know, I, the big ones can play around a little bit and, you know, put in really, really small orders to try to build positions in some of these. Uh, yeah. Well, there's not really many others. I, you have kind of a, you know, you have the New York listed ones. You have, you know, the, the Denison, the, you know, Denison certainly trades some, some, some fair volume, respectable. They're not, nothing like chemical, of course, but we're talking about a tier, a tier below that, you know, Denison yeah. certainly and, and energy fuels. Uh, you know, yeah, that, are, that's interesting. Of, you know, with energy fuels, uh, when I bought it back in uh, the end of uh, March, the first ones I bought of energy fuels, the 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 volume was like uh, one fifteenth of what it is now. So these things uh, they change over time. How uh, the the liquidity in them, it was it was right. very difficult to get shares back then. And now the the liquidity is completely different. Uh, it's not chemical size, but it's not that far off. I think maybe one fifth or something like that. Pretty interesting to to see over time how how these things change. So, uh, are you looking uh, beyond the producers? Are you looking at any uh, developers or junior explore codes at this point? I do own uh, NextGen uh, a little bit uh, after. Uh, when when Cameco got their tax, uh, uh, when that case was settled, I thought, okay, they will have to buy uh, some of these um, developers or explorers pretty soon. So I thought, okay, I should take a in in the least risky of them all, and that would be next gen because that it seems like everybody is is saying that this. As it is not a risky one, this will go into production. Uh, there's a guy who used to be on Twitter. Uh, he was a head engineer on MacArthur River back in the day in the in the 90s. He was he had a lead role there, 
Uh, and he said that the only stock that I'm owning at this point is next gen. So, and if somebody like that says that, then because I mean, I like I said in, in the beginning, I I don't feel comfortable with my conclusions to these technical reports. So I just go by what others say. So that's why I tend to steer away a little bit from those uh, those players. Right. And that's why Nextgen is the only one I feel really comfortable with at this point. Right. Yeah. But uh, but to, but, yeah. I, but yeah. Let me just uh, point out. It's uh, I'm not saying it's it's a right way to think. It's just my preferred um, way of attacking it. And, and as as time kind of goes on, you know, uh, as as nothing happens, folks are going to have plenty of time uh, still yet to. Uh, to look, look and consider their positions, uh, how how they're playing, yeah. uh, what their strategy is, uh, how they're going to take advantage of the context of time, uh, timing with 232, yeah. Canadian stuff, uh, producers being able to come back online, uh, the permitting processes, the development processes uh, to ramp up for some of these longer term projects like a next gen, uh, you know, these types of projects will will take some time. Uh, yeah. And so there'll be some some interesting considerations and then with that comes you know can you can you look at some financial statements can you determine you know compensation uh some of these companies can you determine the management teams what they've done in the past uh and how they're treating things now you know it's 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 difficult for the average investor to identify the credibility of some of these yeah. companies whether it's credibility from the management side the ability to raise money the ability to permit the ability to actually commission and operate uh, mm -hmm. is a whole nother fiasco. And so, you know, you've got to look at some of those things and, you know, there is, there is the thought process. You could just buy a basket of 25 of these things and, and they're all going to, you know, more or less rise with the tide. Uh, you know, that's, that's somewhat, that's somewhat true, but it's, it's a little bit, a little bit naive just to look at it like that. Uh, I think that. Yeah, most, because uh, you will have some problems in there. I mean, I think you at least, you, you at least have to, there are some, some of the players in that that you just should not touch i think and so if sure. you buy a basket those will be included so why not at least i mean yeah i agree with the basket approach to some extent but i think you just you also have to pick and choose um right because you're you're ultimately the one who's on the hook it's your responsibility it's your money yeah it's your hard-earned money if you decide to give this money to you know, irresponsible management teams or whatever. That that's your decision, and, and uh, you get to you get to enjoy the fruits or or the uh, the rot, the that might come of that. So, anyway, nonetheless, yeah. I, I think it's interesting to see how you you know go about the approach and and the evaluation. So, um, on another on another topic, Jacob, uh, looking at the back end. Uh, so so few folks seem to think about this as we continue to stress the importance for our audience. Uh, I think we've continued to try to do that uh, in different methods and ways. Uh, but what about the exit plan? You know, I think that there's some credibility that goes towards, you know, determining your exit plan before you get uh, in bed, so to speak, uh, with these these equities. Um, in your view, what, what indicators will you be looking for as a signal to consider moving closer to the exit hatch? Well, you actually provided me with an idea, something that I read uh, in your research, which is that um, when spot moves above uh, long-term contracts, that could be a sign that you should at least take chips off the table um, because that could be a sign that things are getting frothy and out of control. 
Um, so that would be one one thing. Uh, and then also just, you know, I'm not waiting. You know, I'm, I may have some stocks if, if the uranium price is at 80. I may have some stocks left, but the majority is is gone by then. I'm not going to be one of the big winners in this game. But I also want to make sure that I won't be loser, <laughs> if you know what I mean. You shouldn't get too too greedy. Well, it's 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 a really difficult question because uh, it's this constant weighing of the upsides and the downsides, and uh, you shouldn't be too conservative either. So it's I, I struggle with this. It's it's a difficult question. Right. Uh, I, I, I think my my yeah my my strategy will will. Is is very flexible. I'm not. I'm what I think now. Maybe not what I'll think in six months, because things are happening in the space, and you need to you, you need to to move with it. Uh, you, I don't think you should have very very hard plans. I think you have to be flexible when you're in the markets. That's, yes. Yeah. I think I think you have to adapt and and uh, yeah. I think it makes makes sense that you know folks folks maybe have some ideas and that's why we talked about some of those uh, exit strategy ideas in the report because I think everybody talks about buying this stuff but nobody talks about how to get yeah. out of it and that's and selling that's an is important the difficult piece. one yeah and and I think that uh, you know people need to be considering those potential strategies some of those some of those will exist uh, they're known they're gonna they're they're likely highly likely to happen. And then some stuff yeah. will happen, like you suggested, that uh, you, you're going to need to adapt to, readjust, readjust your strategy, readjust the considerations. And uh, yeah. so I think that there's a number of pieces that need to kind of play into it. And then it's, it looks like with, you know, 232 and so forth, uh, this thing is setting up to be a kind of a, a, a staged approach to different types of vehicles in this sector. And so that's why you want to look at those different stages and what those approaches might be and what the strategies might be to take advantage as everything kind of plays out. And some things are yeah. going to happen earlier than others. And so I think people need to look at that and, and consider how, how they're going to do that. Um, and uh, so I think, you know, overall, it, it certainly needs to be a consideration at this point. Uh, and, you know, Again, it's 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 your 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 hard-earned cash and going into this, and uh, the goal is to reap the rewards, not uh, ride this rocket ship all the way to the top to where it runs out of fuel and then just falls back down because you just wasted a bunch of time and money. Yeah, yeah, and you could also look to the financial players when they are exiting. That could be a time also. Right. Yes. Yes. Absolutely. I think there's there's some different ways to kind of gauge and look at it. Um, so yeah, I, I wanted to ask you, you know, what your thoughts were on it, and, and it's important to, to hear the views of other people uh, that have that have given this space a, a lot of consideration. Um, so what? T tell me this. What, what's your uh, what's your time frame on on you know uranium uranium equities and the uranium uh, space, and and how does that coincide with your kind of you know deep value contrarian? Type approach? Do you are you kind of a long long termer uh, outlook, or are you more short term? Or what's your thoughts on that? Uh, well, so I have thought that the uh, section two thirty two would be the well. First of all, that the MacArthur closure would would spark the the bull market, and 
that has happened that has happened to some extent and then of course uh, like uh, some observers are saying that the 232 either whatever happens there just that there's some clearance and uncertainty has lifted uh, so that the u.s utilities know the playing field and they can go out and 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 purchase what they need to purchase uh, so even if it doesn't go through uh, it could start from there um, but then you never know uh, it seems like uh, there's a big deficit now, and but we the 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 black box, of course, is the inventories. Uh, it seems that now Cameco, who are very um, transparent in what and in and very communicative in what they are seeing. Uh, I only hope that what they're saying is what they're really seeing. But from what I can, my judgment is that they are honest there. Uh, that what they're saying in the conference calls is what they see. Well, I, I was thinking, okay, so what's the bear case? Um, and because you want to always look and look at the downside. And uh, a lot of people are saying that, okay, if we have a new Fukushima, that would be the end of the uranium. Uh, then it's just sell and go home. Uh, I'm not so sure that is where the threat is coming from. Um, I, the, the threat that I see is if the Chinese, um, if they if they stop uh, building new nuclear power plants, and of course that could happen after a, a an accident. But um, I think we need to remember what 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 happened uh, after Fukushima. It was. Because when you look at Fukushima and you and you look at the price and you see there's a there's a correlation there, but it wasn't all only Fukushima. It was also the enormous amount of uh, production coming from Kazakhstan, uh, where they went from a market share of 10% in '09, I think, till 30% just four years later. So they were just flooding the market. Uh, really, in a way that no one had expected. Um, so that was one thing, and then there were the long-term contracts that had been signed up till that stage, which meant that uh, there was no need to, for signing them after the. For, there's, there hasn't been very much contract signing in the period after Fukushima, and that has also had an impact on price. So what I'm, it, that was a long-winded way of saying that I don't think you can just look at, okay, that's an accident cell, because things were very different back then. It was a, it was a perfect storm. Many uh, factors came together. And so I don't think we will see uh, these low prices uh, perhaps ever again. But I may be wrong. It's just how I see it. It would need to be a situation where the whole world collectively decides, okay, uh, no more nuclear power. And and now with the energy, you know, the climate change, and it, it's just not in the near future that we have a replacement for this. And uh, now we need to focus, as a, the world needs to focus on coal, shutting down that. And nuclear power is uh, a way to make sure that the transition 
uh, is that, that we have a smooth transition because we need the electricity. We cannot have the outage of power that in our society that, that can't happen. Yeah, I think, I think you made some good points and, you know, the last cycle, it wasn't, it wasn't just Fukushima. It was oversupply and, yeah. uh, and that, and that will happen again. There's no yeah. doubt that and oversupply will, will occur uh, at some point going forward in the future. Uh, will yeah. will, it, will occur uh, in the in the timing needed to to make some some really nice gains in the sector? No, no, there's no issue there. But eventually, it will become oversupplied. Everybody knows there's no shortage of uranium uh, in the world. There is a shortage of the capability to bring it out of the ground and put it into a plant. That's where the shortage lies. And so, yeah. um, you know, that's that's a pretty obvious one. And one of the other and also permitting, not, permitting yes, in the absolutely. developed world is getting uh, it's getting more and more difficult. Uh, yes. So there is just a bunch of factors coming together for for investors to to enjoy. And <laughs> Hopefully, at, and you need to take a look. You need to take a look too at coal. I mean, for example, let's just use the United yeah. States because that's the best example. Uh, you know, the the time that is taken. To reduce, uh, you know, where, where are we 30, 30 some percent uh, uh, back? I don't know, three, four years ago, uh, to where we are today, uh, where coal is still producing uh, a substantial amount of U.S. Uh, base load power. And so, think about the timing it's taken just to wean off coal, which is uh, a, a dirty way to, to make energy. It's, it's unsafe. It, it certainly has one of the worst safety records of, of all of these. And look, look at how long it's taken to get off of that. And even, even in China, it's, it's going to take time to get yeah. off of it. And, and so there's and, no and, way. And, yeah, yeah. You mentioned China and coal. I mean, that is maybe one of the biggest bull stories uh, the, the, uh, that contributes to the bull picture of uranium and nuclear. Because China has a massive amount of energy coming from coal. And that will take a long time. To, to to get that down to more to better levels, and that's actually where I uh, I started getting interested in in uranium because of the, the the pollution situation over there in China. It's just a massive problem with the um, with all the coal. Um, and, and I think I think you just have a number of uh, number of issues. You just can't get rid of the infrastructure that's in place. Uh, there's too much capital. There's there's way too much capital involved in this sector worldwide and with infrastructure and with the need for industry and advanced modern economies to need the baseload power. So I, again, you just it, there's just no way that anytime soon it's going to come off because there is no true replacement whatsoever. It's very clean. Right. It's very safe. And as so we've gone over this, you know, many times and with that yeah. too, you in the United States, the United States uh, may very well become uh, in the next uh, decade a growth, a nuclear a nuclear energy growth nation. And if mm -hmm. if SMRs and equivalent similar style technologies that are being researched and developed, uh, I'll mention New Scale once again because it's, it's just came off a, a conversation with New Scale uh, earlier uh, this week. And if if that takes uh, which they almost, they're very close, a couple of years, I would say about two years from getting full uh, NRC approvals uh, for their design. If that actually takes and moves, 
that will be a substantial disruptor for the nuclear industry, and it would, would even further uh, increase the growth uh, statistics uh, going forward over the next decade. So that type of change uh, would be incredible. And, you know, of course, you know, new scale is, is not only having the benefits of an incredible uh, nuclear technology that is scalable and small, but, you know, their benefits with their water water treatment abilities and some of the other uh, stuff that they're working on there, fuel designs and so forth with their, their modules. It's really impressive, the technology that's coming out. And uh, I don't see anything else uh, of any, any competitiveness uh, anywhere close to what this could become, at least not right now. I, I'm not trying to say that some cool, uh, really fascinating technology does not come out of the gate in the next 10, 15 years. But regardless of when it comes out, you have to look at the existing infrastructure to understand that this stuff is not going to be taken down overnight. This stuff is going to remain no. and exist for many years going yeah. forward. I mean, in the United States alone, it would take 15, 20, maybe more years to get off nuclear power entirely. So it's not going to yeah. happen anytime soon. And also with regards to uh, China's dependence on coal, uh, they tried to, uh, they imported a lot of uh, liquefied natural gas uh, in 2017. The LNG imports went up by 50%. Uh, and what that did, so that is one way they're trying to to get out of uh, coal. And so they want to increase uh, natural gas, which is a little bit cleaner. And so, but the infrastructure was not in place, so it created a lot of uh, bottlenecks in, in the system, and that meant that uh, you can only go so fast. And that means uh, it will take time, exactly like you like you're saying, it will take time to 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 bring down uh, the coal percentage. But but if, for example, if you if we can build these uh, new new generation power plants faster than we have been able to, or we uh, the industry uh, have been able to in, in the uh, in the past, then that can certainly push things along a lot a lot faster. Yeah, let me let me just make a comment on that, Jacob. You brought it kind of brought it more to my to my attention. Uh, you know, there's there's nothing special about these SMRs. They're more or less just a they're taking old uh, PWR pressurized water reactor technology and applying it just in a small scale. Uh, it's, the same, mm -hmm. it's the same style of the thought process behind building a submarine that's powered by a nuclear reactor or buying a boat, or I'm building a boat that's powered by a which means that the, Which means that, sorry to interrupt, but that, that would mean that the decision to, to, because these decisions are very, they take a long time, but if you can have something like the, uh, the reactors you're talking about, the decision time will be much uh, much faster. Yes, that, that's correct. And and that that conversation did take place and uh, with with New Scale and basically the the thought process was, hey, look, we're not reinventing the wheel here. We're just presenting a wheel, a smaller wheel, uh, for approval. And so that's what's that's what's got them to lead with the NRC. And when you can throw the stamp of approval of the NRC on your technology and on the process then you're going to be able to walk around and say, look, the NRC, the Cadillac of the approval industry for nuclear power has approved our technology. And so that that is a fantastic way about how they've gone about it. And that's why they're so f further along than these other folks. And they're just taking they're just taking stuff that's already been used, uh, whether it's been in the U.S. military, in the Navy, 
for their for their submarines and some of their battleships and so forth that are nuclear powered. Uh, they're just taking that technology and applying it towards a small modular reactor that uh, is even more safe than than anything else that's ever been designed and put into production commercially. And so it's going to be a really interesting couple of years to see how they get this done. And uh, you know, if you can make these things, Jacob, in a in a factory and ship them to a site and and put up, yeah. you know, do a little bit of on ground uh, site construction to put these things in the process, uh, fantastic. And the fact that they don't even require uh, much operator uh, interaction reduces the human error part of this uh, industry. And uh, it's it's really fascinating stuff that they're doing. Uh, really, really impressive, and we have that coming out soon for people to listen to. So it's 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 quite uh, a fascinating time to be alive, and a fascinating time to be you know part of this uh, this industry. Yeah, that that would be. I look forward to listening to that, and hopefully some of the uh, environmentalists could um, weigh in on these things as well, because they need yes. to get on board very very soon. I think the, the public awareness work uh, needs to be improved in, in the sector, and there needs to be an effort by a lot of the utilities and a lot of the industry players, uh, from from mining to commercial generation, need to be doing a better job of public outreach uh, across the board. Um, so I think it's it's interesting to that you brought that up. I think it's a key part to uh, getting folks on board, getting the support on board, uh, you know, going forward. Yeah, but it's difficult to change because people have uh, Mr. Burns from uh, The Simpsons in their heads. <laughs> so yeah, no. I, eventually, yeah. eventually, people, you know, kind of it kind of hurts. Eventually, you know, whether it's uh, you know seeing it, seeing the end result in a power bill, or you know the ratepayers yeah. and, and the different taxes that go part of this, I, you know, people do uh, start to change their views, and, and uh, it'll be interesting to see because I think the yeah. view of, new, of of solar and wind. To some degree, it's starting to wean off. Um, I think people are starting to realize that uh, this wasn't the 100% solution uh, that we were kind of uh, pitched back early in the day. Um, and plus with that too now, you have a reduction of capital going into that space because if you have uh, a- Well, not in Sweden. Of, not, in not Sweden, it's in Sweden. Not, not yet, but I think, I think in the more uh, kind of advanced uh, industry markets there, I, I wanna say that uh, because the margins of this technology has declined significantly, it's become much more efficient, and the costs have, mm -hmm. have considerably come down um, to to build these. And so, I think some of the businesses that are involved, namely in the United States, I, I can't speak for the other the other markets because I, I haven't researched them, but certainly in the United States, it's becoming less attractive from a margin standpoint. And mm -hmm. so, it'll be interesting to see how the Backers, the funds, and the uh, the folks that were putting money into this space, how their how their thought process is going forward from a return on capital standpoint. Yeah, then that could also, if we talk about electricity as a commodity, but electricity, there are different kinds of electricity in the way that there's base load and there is intermittent. Uh, and so um, you could also see a way to save nuclear would be to to put a premium premium on the fact that it's always on and, and that it's dependable. So that could be a way to that could be a, a catalyst uh, also for the industry. That if if you get a right. price for producing an asset, uh, sorry, a um, commodity that 
has more value. It has more value when it's when you know that you can depend on it and when you don't sure. need the weather to behave. So yeah, let's, and let's take it a, st- a step further, Jacob, and say, you know what, if, if the safety record of, of this energy source is not that good, let's go ahead and slap a tax on it because the safety record is not that good. And by the way, because mm-hmm. it's uh, it, it does, you know, things like coal, natural gas, and some of these others, uh, even wind and solar do have carbon impacts, uh, potentially more than what nuclear has. I know that's arguable, yeah. but the cost, the cost to manufacture these comp- components and parts to maintain them and then to replace them through their usable life, uh, that is all part of the carbon footprint in my view. So yeah, look at the definitely. safety records, the slaps and taxes on for poor safety records and solar and wind do not have impeccable safety records, by the way. And let's, let's go ahead and tax, tax them a little bit on carbon because their carbon footprints uh, do have an impact. And uh, so let's see how that works out in the end. So it'll be interesting to see how the, the governments, the utilities, and you know the PUCs and the states and some of these others uh, come to approach these uh, these challenges going forward and how they pass that on to the ratepayer. Well, I'll tell you what, Jacob. Uh, let's leave it there. Um, what's the best way for folks to reach out to you? Um, they could they can contact me on Twitter. The handle my handle is uh, Hammer Investing, and uh, they can send a private message there, or they can read my blog, uh, which is Hammer Investing. WordPress, uh, hammeringwesting.wordpress.com. Well, thank you, Andrew, and it was fun. And uh, if I can just say that I appreciate these discussions, all these guests you're having on, and the type of questions that you're asking asking them, because it, it, get it gets a, we, we get a different behind the scenes uh, look at, uh, you, you're asking them some questions where they are taking off their scripts, and I kind of like that. <laughs> Just wanted to add that. Well, I appreciate the comments on that, and, and uh, we're trying to be different about it. Uh, it's yeah. not really uh, cost-effective cost for us, but we're nonetheless, we enjoy it. It's a hobby, and it's a big piece of uh, the day uh, doing this work at Smith Weekly Research. And uh, so I, I hope folks are enjoying it, and uh, hopefully we can continue to, to uh, deliver these different uh, ideas and, and methods uh, going forward. Yeah, I hope so.